turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 23. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. As you're turning, let me quote the book of Proverbs. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. What the book of Proverbs is referring to back to is our insatiable desire for stuff. And isn't that the truth? How many junk rooms do we have full of stuff? And we somehow can't seem to get enough. This gets to the very heart or passage this morning, and I'm just going to cut to the chase, it gets to the heart of the issue of coveting. Now, coveting is not a word we use very often anymore. That word has kind of gone by the wayside. So let me give a definition. This is from the Shorter Catechism. It is that discontentment with our own lot in life. It's that envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and it's all the inordinate affections to anything that belongs to our neighbor. It's wrong desires. It gets to the very heart of the issue that we have a constant longing for more, and it breeds discontentment. What's the old saying? You got to keep up with the Joneses. We deal with that, don't we? How do we get over that? How do we see coveting a, to be a sin that's not only repented of, but turned from? Let's pick it up in our sermon in a sentence. God's promise crushes our covetousness. God's promises crush our covetousness. Let's pray and we'll jump into the passage. Heavenly Father, we speak this morning to varied to issues of the heart. There's no one who knows the heart better than you do, and there's no one who can change the heart but you. So I ask that your word would soak in and penetrate the very walls of our heart that in it we may find clarity and cleansing. So Father, I pray your spirit would be with the reading and the preaching of the word for that purpose. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Alright, we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as the sole of the foot to tread on. 
because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have liked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau who lived in Seir, away from the Arabia, road from Elath to Ezon-Geber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession. For I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Enum formerly lived there, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they also are counted as Rephidim, but the Moabites called them Enim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did of the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. And so we went over the brook of Zered and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook of Zered was 38 years until the entire generation that is, the men of war had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from out of the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross at the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephidim. Rephaim, sorry, Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zumzum, a people great and many, tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled them in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them. And they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Evim who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtorim who settled from Kaphtor destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite. Oh, we're going to stop right there. I was getting too excited. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. I want you to imagine with me for a moment. You spent 40 years in the wilderness eating the same old food and looking at the same old sand every single day. How's that going to make you feel? We go on vacation, we stay out on the beach for a week, and what do we long to get back to? Our own bed. When I was a younger man, we went to Haiti, spent seven days in a Caribbean country, eating peas, eating beans and rice, 
The first thing I did when we landed in Miami is I ate the most overpriced hamburger I could get my hands on and took a hot shower. That was after a week, seven days. Now imagine 14,600 days. Do you think that you would be desiring your own hot hamburger and hot shower? I would. As this journey comes to a close, Israel prepares to travel to a land that is not their own, full of hot hamburgers they cannot eat and warm showers they cannot enjoy. And with that context in mind, we don't have to ponder very long why God tells them not to wage war, but to purchase things fairly. Really, we, have to, we only have to look at our own hearts and to see the places that wrong desire, that covetousness has led us. The average person spends about eight hours a day on their phone. What do you think they're doing? Shopping. Looking and seeing what everybody else has. Oogling over the possessions of others. Covetousness has led to many of men deceiving the time clock so they can bring home a little extra. To getting themselves up to their eyeballs in debt so as I said earlier we could keep up with the Joneses. It has led to a world of discontentment. Now how does God quell this wrong desire in Israel? How does He deal with the issue of covetousness? How does He deal with it in us? Well if God's promise is the only weapon we have to crush covetousness, Let's take a moment and see God's promise at work in our passage. What does this passage teach us about God? It teaches us He's always faithful in His promises. Now God's faithfulness cuts two ways. We see the first way it cuts with the nations. God kept His promise to provide. Isn't that the main reason that God says don't mess with them God doesn't say look Israel Esau could bop you right in the nose that might have been a true statement but that's not what God says is it what God does instead is he points them to the promise a mere threat of defeat cannot quell the desires of the heart so instead, God points them to a better portion. He's already given the nations their portion. He says, verse 5, verse 9, verse 19, I have given them the land as a possession. God is the sole proprietor of heaven and earth. I do not own 251 Court Street, Raymond, Mississippi, 39154. God does. I am a steward of that possession. He is the sole proprietor of heaven and earth. And in Acts it says that he has determined the periods and boundaries of man's dwelling place. This is his property. And he doles it out according to how he pleases. But the property he mentions in our passage, Esau's people... Lot's people, it has come by virtue of promise. 
according to the promise he made to Abraham. Esau is his grandchild. Lot's children, these are his nephews or his great-nephews. God cleared the land for them. He displaced the giants. He did all the things for them just as he promised he would do for Israel. Are you seeing a trend here? These are not God's covenant people. They're not partakers of the covenant of grace. They're not looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Esau is a known covenant breaker. Moab, Ammon are the descendants of an incestuous relationship. And yet despite their past failures and despite the failures that are to come, God does not fail to keep His present promise. He's faithful. Can I make an aside that's completely unrelated from the sermon? Parents, your children and your children's children are affected by your faithfulness or the lack thereof. We see that with these nations. Our faithfulness lives long after we do. We see a similar faithfulness from God, a promise to provide. We see it in the nation of Israel. Despite their sin and rebellion at the border, God kept His promise to provide. He says it in verse 7. The Lord has blessed you in all the work of your hands. Every increase you have enjoyed has been because of the Lord. For 40 years, the Lord has known your wanderings. For 40 years, the Lord has been with you. You have lacked nothing. He knows their wanderings. He does not know them from an arm's length. He knows them intimately. How well does God know them? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses says God even knew the treads on the bottom of their sandals. Tell me something. How many people do you know the condition of their footwear? Your own? When it starts to hurt your back? God knew the footwear of 600,000 men plus their families. Just the men alone, that's three times the population of Hines County. You put the families in, it's greater than the state of Mississippi. And he knew the conditions of the shoes of every single one of them. And they did not wear out. Does God keep his promise? Yes. He was with them. Though they were faithless, he remained faithful. He would be faithful for them when they wandered in the wilderness. He would be faithful when they wandered from God himself. He kept his promise. But I said, promises cut both ways. If God promises to provide and he keeps that promise, well, guess what? When God promises to punish, he keeps that promise as well. Look at verse 15. He says, Indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. It's not like 
They wandered for 40 years until everybody got old and died in their sleep. It says that God was active in their punishment. He was active in ridding of that generation. When God made a promise to provide, He swore an oath. When God made that same promise to punish in chapter 1, He swore an oath. He bound Himself through that promise. Now you may not like that part of God's promise, but let me ask a question. You're a manager, an employer. Which is easier, to give a raise or to fire somebody? If you're a parent, what's easier, to give gifts at Christmas or to, or to discipline? In our friendships, what's easier, taking people out to lunch and celebrating or taking somebody out to lunch to critique them? Which one is harder? If God has been faithful in these hardest of moments, will He not also be faithful in every other one? I think this, this, this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 8 where he says, God who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also graciously give us all things? He's given us His Son. He kept His promise to provide for Christ. From heaven He uttered the voice, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He poured out the Holy Spirit, which, which fullness abided upon Jesus Christ. After His temptations with Satan, and after the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, He sent the angels to minister to Him. In every way, He provided for His Son. But He also kept the hard part of the promise. In every way, He punished His Son. Isaiah 53 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Jesus did not make it to the cross simply because of the misgivings of lawless men but this was foreordained and predestined to take place, that He could bear our transgressions, that He could be pierced for our iniquities. If God has kept that most challenging part of His promise, will He not provide for us everything else we need in life? The segues into the second question I want to ask us. What does this passage require of us? Here's the promise. God will provide. What's the requirement? We must crush our covetousness. Remember, coveting, it addresses the heart. Is that wrong desire... For more, not content with what God has given us. But it seems petty. Covetousness. Covetousness is the very fuel for our economic engine. It is the motor of our social, social media machine. It is built upon covetousness. 
I can remember an old commercial for deodorant. And it started with the guy, he was older, balding, had a dad bod, and he was by a swimming pool, and it was boring. And then he puts on some deodorant. And bikini-clad women pop out of the bushes. Music starts playing. It's a great time. What's the connection? Your life is boring, but if you want what I have, you need more. It's built upon what? Covetousness. And it forces us to ask the question. They're asking us, why don't you have this? Then we ask God, God, why haven't you given it to us? And what does that question imply? Either God wants to give us good things, but He can't, or He can give us good things, but He doesn't want to keep His promise. Both are blasphemous thoughts. I am of the thought that in Acts chapter 7, Paul covets Stephen's knowledge. For after the stoning of Stephen, who was holding the coats? It's Paul. And there's so much of Stephen's sermon that we can see throughout the writings of Paul. Because of this covetousness, I believe Paul writes this in Romans 7. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment to covet came, or not to covet came, sin came alive and I died. Shortly after Paul's coveting of Stephen's knowledge, we have the Damascus Road experience. He was convicted of that wrong desire. Wrong desires lead to bad places. For Israel, it threatened war. For Paul, it led to the approval of Stephen stoning. For us, it leads to hours online lamenting what we do not have. Stalking others on social media to live vicariously through their success. It leads up to debt so that we can have what we do not need. It leads to tossing men off the corporate ladder through lies and deception. It leads to rampant pornography use because we're not happy with our lot in life. These wrong desires are a million silent voices uttering blasphemies against God our Savior. Do we not see the danger of desire? It must be crushed, but how do we do it? Covetousness can only be crushed the same way it was in our passage, by reminding ourselves and delighting ourselves in God's promises. First, we must allow God's promise to humble us. MJ and I were talking before service about Paul in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? That is true for Israel. What did they have that God did not give them? It was true for Edom, for Moab, for the Ammonites. It is true for us. What do we have that we did not receive? Everything we have comes by the way of grant, by the way of promise. 
from him who is the sole proprietor of heaven and earth. We need to be reminded we have not earned, we have not earned, we have not earned, but he is given. Second, we need to be watchful for the desires of our heart. You know, I wish our hearts had a browsing history. Now I could pull up the browsing history of my heart and see where it's been. But if I pull up the browsing history of my phone, where has it been? You know, when I worked at Lowe's, I learned something very quickly. When I'm selling appliances and a sweet little lady comes in to replace her stove, if I give her a thousand options, she's not buying anything. I got to give her three. Too many options overwhelm us. How many times do we get online and we start looking for one thing and then we find out we spend hours looking because there's so many options. In the same way, our heart has no end of options. There's always something we want. That's once we begin down the path of covetousness, it is a very long journey home. Therefore, I encourage all of us, watch your heart. Watch it. What are the triggers for us? What are the things that trigger covetousness with us? What efforts can we make to divert our desires away from the things of this world and to the things of God? How can we rein in our passions and pleasures while they're still very tiny? Lastly, meditate on God's promises. This is why God continues to put His promise before Israel. He's looking at Israel and He says, You have the better portion. You have the better portion. You have the better portion. Don't worry about what they've got. You have me. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? We need God's promises pressed before us. That is why this table is before us this morning. We need to hold between the thumb and forefinger of our mind the precious promise that we have the better portion. We don't need to be up to our eyeballs in debt. We don't need to have what our neighbors have. All we need is Jesus. He is the better portion. Are we setting our minds on heaven where Christ is seated? Are we enjoying Him? In closing, and whether we are rich or poor, sickness or in health, or better or for worse, as long as we have Jesus, we have enough. Whatever lot Jesus gives us on this world, in this world, is only supplies for our journey to heaven. And when we get to heaven, we're going to leave them right at the door. So church, how do we crush our covetousness? We must have faith in God's promises. 
If you are eaten up with covetousness and have never delighted in Jesus Christ, he calls you today and he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will be your better portion. He calls us today to turn from the desires that we've held for 30, 80 plus years of our life and say, these obviously aren't satisfying you. Come to me. If you're struggling with contentment, if you're giving over to coveting, even as a believer, if you're waging that war, how do you win that war? It's by having more of Christ. So I'd encourage you to come to the table and find your joy in Him. Now let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all that you have given us. I think of Lamentations chapter 3, that were not for the mercy of the Lord, we would have been consumed. Your mercy has stayed us until this very day. Father, I pray that in your mercy you would strengthen us, that our minds may be stayed upon you, and that we may find our fullness in your presence. So Heavenly Father, help us to turn from the things of this world and to delight ourselves in the Lord. Father, we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Church, would you stand with me? We're going to sing the first two verses of 693. Of 693. And then we will partake of communion.